In this third tape in the series, Purpose and Vision, Jim Durkin outlines the scope of this activity. Now, we've dealt up to this time with the subject of purpose. And that purpose has been explained that it must be the result of a revelation. It cannot be an intellectual grasp. It's so easy to say the purpose of God is to glorify him. But that can become the greatest of all abstractions. Or we can simply interpret it in terms of our human mind, and then we would picture different things which would glorify God. For instance, one group of people, class mentality of people, might think the way to glorify God would be to take the name of Jesus and paint it over walls. Say, well, that's exalting the name of Jesus, isn't it? Might be just the reverse is true, that it does not glorify God at all. Or another group of people might have the idea that the way to glorify God is to build great cathedrals, and surely that's a testimony to God. Or another group of people might believe that the way to glorify Jesus is to withdraw themselves to the desert and keep away from what they would call sinners and have nothing to do with them. Many, many different ideas that could come to our minds as to our idea of glorifying God. But the first thing that I have to admit to myself is that everything that comes to me from God must be revealed to me. I cannot understand it naturally, and if I attempt to understand it naturally, I'm going to fall into error. Now, therefore, if the purpose of God is to have any meaning, something must be revealed to me as to how to effect that purpose. How do I carry it out? What makes the purpose valid and real? So that God is able to say, at the end of my days, well done, good and faithful servant. You have carried out my purpose on the earth. Now, the Lord Jesus, when he was here, would have been able to say that. He had done what he came to this world to do. He did it well. He did it perfectly. And God was well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Paul was able to say at the end of his days, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. He knew what the vision was, and he carried it out effectively. In the Old Testament, many of the men of God said, had this testimony beforehand that they pleased God, because they knew what God's mind, his purpose, his direction, his will, his vision, they knew what it was, and they followed it out. Now, if you search out in the Old Testament, you'll see that these men had a revelation from God. They did not simply dream up something they wanted to do and said, this is what I will do for God. They first asked, God, why am I here on this earth, and what do you want me to do? And then when God revealed to them the what, they simply carried it out to the best of their ability, constantly submitting to God, constantly calling on him for help, constantly depending on him for strength, and the result is, though they had failures in their lives, but when they had failures, they repented, and the result is, in finality, that they finished the work God gave them to do, and they laid down in sleep, and they were in the arms of God. Now, there is what we call a vision, and the vision, by definition, is what God sees to be the best way of affecting the purpose. Now, we're not talking about visions or my vision. This is what I want to do with my life. We're not speaking about that when we talk about the vision. Nor are we speaking about going to sleep at night and dreaming a dream or with eyes wide open beholding 
pictures of one sort or another which reveal to us something. We're speaking about something that is in the heart of God and is the same for every man. So that if I were to go to God and say, Lord, what is the best way for me to affect the purpose? God would reveal to me his vision. If another man were to come and ask the same question, God would reveal his vision. And if a thousand or ten thousand or ten million men and women, knowing the Lord Jesus, came and asked God the means, the best means of effecting the purpose, God would give them the vision, and if we compared the vision, we would find it would be exactly the same thing for every man. Now, that's remarkable on the surface of it. But let's take a look at what the Word of God has to say and see if it is not easily understandable. Now, how to put it into effect? We'll take a revelation. But we can see that it is the vision. All right? Before I explain exactly what the vision is, let me say that vision is essential to a man's productive spiritual life. Now, the American mind is to simply go to church and live a clean life. But vision is something which causes our work and our desire to turn God's Word into a living practice. Vision causes us to accomplish that which God wants accomplished on the earth and with our life. Now, purpose gives the direction, but vision shows the means of transportation to the goal. It shows how to carry out the purpose. Now, let's stop and illustrate this maybe in simpler words or a different way, that if I have purpose, that shows me where I am ultimately moving toward, so that every part of my life then is aimed at that purpose. And without that purpose, I would never know the direction toward which I'm moving. But now the vision gives me the means by which to get there, so I will not be trying every other means than the one which God wants me to use. There are three means which God wants me to use to effect the purpose. And we'll discuss those in just a moment. Now, knowing that there are three that God wants used, if those are revealed to me, I do not have to waste my time trying all the other possible means that I might dream up and conceive in my mind that may affect the purpose. I now know which means to use to affect the purpose. And this is a marvelous grace of God to reveal to us his vision. Now, vision can never be something that comes out of my head. It must always be something in the heart of this eternally wise, loving God. He knows. I don't know. He sees. I can't see. His wisdom is perfect. Mine is limited and finite. And out of his heart, revealed to me, comes the vision. And we need a vision. For the Bible says, without a vision, the people perish. Now, that's the King James. But the revised version, or the American Standard Version, says, where no vision is, the people cast off restraint. Another translation says the people run like wild horses. The principle that is speaking about here, where there is no vision, people dash off in every direction, trying to carry out the work of God, or maybe a lesser thing they're falling back into, but they simply don't know what to do. So instead of a group of Christians being in harness together, all pulling with a measured tread so that great loads are moved toward what God has called us to move things toward, we're all running off in opposite directions. And the load that God wants moved remains untouched. 
while we strain and buck and pull against each other, each one wanting to do his individual little vision. Now, where no vision is, the people cast off restraint. The opposite then becomes true. Where a true vision is, the people of God pull themselves together, link themselves around that vision, and begin to move with certainty toward that purpose. Now, the third point I'd like to make is that a vision produces a day-by-day motivation. I get weary in the service of God. I don't get weary serving God, but I get weary in the service of God. Many of the things that I must do at times are repetitious by nature. Many of the things that must be carried out involve listening at length to some person as they spill out their heart or spill out their problems, and I must listen to those problems. And as we train ourselves in these matters, we become at times kind of bogged down in the weariness of the day-by-day activities of God's kingdom. But we will never lose enthusiasm for the work of God, and we will never lose a sense of motivation if we truly keep that purpose at all times before us, and we truly know that we're sticking very close to the exact vision that God has laid down. Not only does that vision stimulate us, but it focuses our work toward one aim. One of the worst things that can possibly happen is the scattering of anything. Our forces, very great and very powerful, but if they're scattered, they're very weak and can do very little. But let's say we bring all of those forces together like a focusing lens can bring the light of the sun together to bear on one tiny point and we'll heat a piece of paper up or a piece of wood so it can burst into flame. But let that light be scattered, and there's just a mild warmth. And with many Christians, their lives are just simply a mild warmth instead of that red-hot life released that changes everything that it touches. And that's what God wants of us, that our lives change our generation. Not only does that vision, once it's really clear, produce that focusing but it causes men and women of God to link together around that purpose and vision. Now, if anything is ever revealed in the Scripture, it's that we can do nothing by ourselves. Jesus was very quick to make that clear to us when he said, you can do nothing by yourself. We need him. Well, but not only do we need him, we need those whom he has raised up also. We need to be linked with our brethren. That's why he said, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Or where two or three shall agree as touching anything, it will be done of my Father which is in heaven. Or another scripture in the New Testament, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together after the manner of some is. Some believe by being by themselves, they will not have the hassles of other people disturbing them and bothering them and tormenting them in various ways. And so they desire to withdraw themselves to a life of prayer and meditation, focusing upon God, believing that this will produce a great release of power. But actually, that is not true. God's method, and here again we have to listen to it, is for great numbers of men and women to come together in the name of Jesus, bound together with a common purpose and a common vision, moving in the same direction under authority, and then great and powerful works take place upon this earth which the earth has to look at and say, this has been the hand of God. No human hand could have done this. You see, this was what happened in Jerusalem. Those people were not politically powerful. They were not rich. They were not 
people that were recognized as having great status, yet they turned the whole of the city upside down. They would spread out from that city, and they would spread all over the Roman Empire, and in 300 years they would turn the Roman Empire upside down so that it would become the religion of the empire. Now, that was not done by being scattered, but by that early church having a clear knowledge of who and what they were and what they were to be doing. They had purpose, they had vision, and they moved inexorably toward it. They could be killed, they could be slaughtered, they could be tortured, they could be murdered, they could have their goods confiscated, everything taken away from them. And yet nothing moved them from that purpose and that vision. They moved toward They did not fear death. They did not fear what man could do to them. They feared only one thing, and that was displeasing God. And they moved toward that purpose and vision. And the result was they established the Word of God for their generation. We must be linked together, and the purpose and vision will do that. It empowers us to clearly see priorities and eliminates the confusion of the multitude of things we could do. Now, years ago, I tell you, my life did not have much effect as far as changing people's lives. Now, we in ourselves never have any power to change anyone's life. But Christ living in us, if we are rightly related to God, we living in this earth do affect men's lives, and we change people's lives. I saw that in the Word of God, but I never saw the life-changing things take place. Maybe there'd be three, four people a year would find the Lord, and that's all, and that was a good year. Some years there'd be even less than that. And it was a very discouraging kind of ministering experience. It was not something that any minister would be happy to do unless you just simply settle for a job. But if you wanted what this Bible speaks about, then you could not be satisfied with that kind of an experience. When I went through a great crisis time and a great breaking time, and God showed me his purpose and his vision and how he wanted me to practice the word, one of the things that God revealed to me is there are all kinds of things in the world that could be done. And by the gifts that God had given me, by devoting myself to those things, I could do them in some measure of success. But God showed me that I can never do everything that could be done, so I have to decide on what should be done and pick one or two or three or four things according to whatever capacity I have, and I must devote my attention, my mind, to those things. Now, there are multitudes of things that can be done, but I must be able to know which are the priority things that must be done. And I cannot know that naturally either. I must test every one of those things in the light of what I call the purpose and the vision. Does this thing that I want to do really fit into the idea that I'm doing this only for the glory of God? Or is it merely a very personal thing? I want to do it only for me and has nothing to do with the glory of God at all. Or is this thing which people are asking me to do? Is it really that I'm doing this for the glory of God? Or I'm doing this only because a social pressure is put upon me and I don't quite know how to get out of it. We have to learn how to know which are the important things and which are not the important things. Now, I've not perfectly done that. But since I've had a clear understanding of purpose and vision, I'm much more able to know which things not to do and which things to give myself to. And without that, 
We'll never know what the priorities are in our lives. Now, first of all, I'm going to lay out the vision in a short form, and then we'll take time in teaching to expand it. The vision actually is threefold. Now, we must remember it's not three visions. It's three aspects of a single vision. Just like God can be called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet it's not three separate gods. The three are one God. So the three aspects of this vision are aspects of a vision. It is one vision moving toward one single purpose. The first part of that vision is to be, and it's a personal part, is to be personally conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Clean living is not enough. We must come to know him, his ways, to know the commitment he had, the relationship he had with the Father. And that's something that, once again, is not something we can merely receive by someone giving us the words. And we'll say, well, don't you see the commitment Jesus had to the Father? Oh, yes, I see that. He, uh, he gave his life on the cross. Don't you see that he left his heavenly home? Yes, I see that. That's not enough. We can get all of those words and be utterly meaningless to us. There must be a revelation from the Father about that commitment, about that relationship, about that surrender. And then the Bible tells us, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, the same kind of mind. And the Bible tells in another place, as incredible as it may sound, we have the mind of Christ. So Jesus living in us, that mind is there, but it is warring against this carnal mind, which is the result of our programming in this world, the whole world lying in the lap of the wicked one. And it is as God reveals himself to us that I see what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But even at the beginning, just hearing that, that I as a person can be conformed to the image of Jesus, if I know nothing more than that, the, the thought of Jesus, the life that he lived, the very word itself, the name, is enough to put a thrill on the inside of my being to say, oh God, I want to be like that. Now when I start thinking about it, now I get confused because I say, well, how will I do it and what will I do and when will I do it and where will I do it? And I can come up with many, many questions to which I have no answer in the beginning. But if I stop that mental question asking and trying to find answers and just look inside to hearing that voice looking at the Word of God and thrilling to the sweep of it as the Lord Jesus walks by and the things He does and says and the way He is and the way His Father speaks about Him and say, God wants me to be like that and I want to be like the Lord Jesus. Something happens on the inside of us and we begin moving toward that purpose to glorify God. I want to be like Jesus. And the Bible teaches us that as we exalt the Lord Jesus, as we exalt Jesus, we are carrying out the purpose of God. We are bringing glory to God. But then there's another aspect to it. And now it goes on to a larger purpose. He has produced on this earth what he calls the church, or he calls his body. Now that body, there was a design in the heart of the Lord, in the heart of the Eternal Father, that that body should be one, not just one in the heart of God, but one manifested on the earth so the world could see it. And in the early church, it was like that. It was in unity, even though they had disagreements. They knew they were brothers. They knew they were a body. They knew they were together. And when they went out as that body 
the world looked at them and said, this is the work of something miraculous. The sick are healed, the dead are raised, the lepers are cleansed, the blind are made to see, the word is being preached. What is this thing? Then the Bible says in another place, they had to take note of them, that they had been with Jesus. They were called Christians, followers of Christ. It was very clear that they believed in a resurrected living Lord to which they could relate. And the world cannot handle that. Now, the way Satan has warred against that is to fragment the church. So he produces in our minds the idea that I cannot relate with another. I can admit he's my brother, but I can't relate with him because there's some little difference we have, and I want nothing to do with him. I fear him. I don't want to be around him. I can't relate to him socially. I can't speak his language. And I don't want to be with him. So I get together with a little group which I can fit with naturally, and I call this my church, and you go to your church. And by that, we separate ourselves into hundreds of little fragments, and we want nothing to do with each other at all. But that's not what's in God's heart. That's not what's in the Lord's heart. The Lord's heart is that we shall recognize all true brothers and sisters everywhere, and we shall be one with them in heart and soul and mind and spirit, be able to cooperate with them and work with them, that the world can see in spite of our differences. And we can freely admit, yes, there are things we don't quite understand the way someone else does. But we know they're our brother. And we love them and we care for them and they love us and they care for us. And when the world looks at that, people who don't agree with each other, people with different backgrounds, people of different color, people of different economic status, people of different cultural leanings, and yet they're all able to work together and care for each other and love one another, the Bible says when the world sees this, they will believe that God sent Jesus into the world. And that's exactly what the Lord prayed for in the 17th chapter of John. And that's the second part of the vision, that the church should be one, that the world would believe that God sent Jesus into it. And then this church, while it's perfecting itself, Paul said, I'm striving to present you as a virgin to Christ, ready for that marriage supper of the Lamb. But while that church is coming into this perfection, the third part or third aspect of that vision is this church is to be going into all the world and preaching the good news. See, exalting the Lord Jesus, telling his story, telling about his majesty, his person, his work, what he did, the wonder of his glory, and about the eternal Father and the blessed Spirit and the marvels of the Word and the miracles of God and what can happen if... And as we go into all the world and declare that good news... We're completing the third part of that vision, and we bring glory to God by that means. Now, many other things we could do, but the Bible never speaks about those things. That's not what God wants. God wants these three things, and when these three things are done according to God's direction in our lives, and we have to know how to come to find out that personal, individual direction of how we fit into that unique application of the vision that we can personally do. We can find that out from God. But if we've got this in our mind, Lord, I see that. The purpose is to glorify you with my whole life. And the way by which you want me to glorify you is to be conformed to Jesus. Oh, Lord, I want to do that. And then to see the church one. Oh, Lord, I want to do that because I want the world to believe that God sent you into this world. I want 
that to come to pass, that the world will know that you, Heavenly Father, have loved us even as you've loved your Son, Jesus. Yes, I want that, Father. You see, we see the vision, that it's good and that's right, and we give ourselves to it. And the third part, we say, Father, use me, however, wherever, in whatever way you can, that I may be also a part of spreading this good news into the whole world, that every creature may know the wonder and the beauty and the power and the glory of our Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, I want you to be glorified. Lord Jesus, I want your name to be raised up and honored. See, now when we make this kind of commitment, then something happens inside. Something that is not intellectual, something that is not emotional, it's something deeper than our emotions, deeper than our intellect, but it's something that affects our emotions. I thrill when I think about that. It's something that affects my mind for good. It's changed my mind on many different things and caused it to conform to that purpose of vision. So today, my mind rarely argues with me about any point concerning God. It's learned to believe what God's Word teaches. But without that purpose and vision, I would be an absolute slave to my mind and to my emotions. They would still rule me. They would tell me that I was too weak to do the work of God. They would tell me that I was too busy to think about these things. Or they would tell me that I was too confused to even get into the work of God. But because I'd given myself to the purpose and vision, both my mind and my emotions have come under control, and I'm now able to do the work of God in never better way. Now we're going to take time to expand the concept of the vision. We're going to speak about being conformed to the image of Christ. Now I want each of us to think about this in a unique way. Being conformed to the image of Christ really means two things. One, it's something that each of us can look at the Word of God and see something about the nature of Jesus from the Word of God. Now we can't see everything about the nature of Jesus, but we can see a good deal about it. We can see by the words that he spoke how he was. But we must remember certain things about him. He was limited to his primary message, which was to the Jewish people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So we must see him in this very limited environment, this very limited circle of influence that he was called upon by God to walk in. And he expressed the life of God in that limited environment which God called him to be in. So there's one aspect which we look at him and we see him there, and what he did there we know is good for all time, everywhere. The life, the way he cared for people, the way he protected and defended people, the very moral nature, the great desire he had to do the will of his Father which was in heaven, all of those things press us toward a conformity for that kind of life. But there is a second kind of conformity, which partly depends on a expanded understanding of the whole Word of God, which, of course, the Lord Jesus himself had, and the teaching of the Holy Spirit as to what our particular work in this life is. So you see, what we're really saying is Jesus is still on this earth, living in each one of us that know him, and wanting to live out a peculiar kind of life or lifestyle through each one of us. Because we are not called to go to a 
wooden cross to redeem the world. That has been done by the Lord Jesus himself in the body that God gave him. Now, our bodies, being the temples of the Holy Ghost, the place where the Lord Jesus lives, he once again is living by the circumstances we find ourselves in, the destiny which God has ordained for us if we yield ourselves completely to it. We, being conformed to him, it means not only looking into Scripture and conforming morally to him, but it means a complete submission to him whereby he is able to live out his life now here on this earth in our life. So I have a lifespan in which Jesus living in me, directing me, it's not me doing things for the Lord, it's the Lord doing something through me. He is ministering powerfully on the earth, but he's using me as the vehicle, and I'm submitted and surrendered to that. Now, this is a hard concept to understand, because we are so, by our carnal natures, independently minded, we constantly wish to fall back on learning some set of rules or regulations that are the boundaries of our behavior, and then assuming that we take the initiative from this point on, and whatever we dream up to do, this is an acceptable thing in the sight of God. And so many people waste their entire lives doing things which they have dreamed up, which have no real relationship to the kingdom at all. And the reason for this is they have never understood what it means being conformed to Jesus. That I am not only conforming to the scriptural presentation of the Lord, but I am allowing myself to be conformed to that inner working of the Holy Spirit, which is always I have the scriptures as a check to make sure I'm not doing something out of the will of the Lord. The scripture is always my frame of reference, but the Holy Spirit within me is leading me. The body which God has given me to fellowship in, through the authority that God has established within that body, is constantly surrounding me with the right safeguards, so that I am able to carry out an action on this earth which would be the same action as though Jesus himself were called by God to live that particular life which I am living. Now, I hope that's not too complex. If it is, then we ought to go back over that in our minds because I think that's one of the most fruitful concepts any Christian can ever grasp. Not me living for Jesus, but truly conform to him so that he is living through me and expressing his life in my life. Now, if we have that basic principle down, then I think it's easy to understand why we say don't concentrate just on theology. Theology is important. We certainly should study the Word of God, and theology simply means study about God. Well, now, Without some study about God, we would never have a frame of reference by which to check ourselves and know if we were moving along a right path or not. But many times we substitute theology. And the worst of it is we go more and more into the details of theology, trying to get right every possible nuance of belief so that we feel we're absolutely right in our beliefs about God, but that's not the important thing. Our beliefs about God are important, but far more important 
is to so conform ourselves to Jesus that he is living through us, and we are an expression of that theology in action and in practice, rather than merely saying, these are the things we believe, we need to say these are the things we do and practice in this life. And that Jesus is living in us, he is leading us, he is guiding us, and therefore we know that the things we accomplish are the things the Lord wants accomplished for the furtherance of the kingdom on the earth. Now see, being conformed is a far more important thing than merely something that we can leave till we get to heaven and say, well, up there we will be conformed. Certainly we will be. But it's important that it be done right here and now. So to know him and to make him known and to let him live in us is far more important than any theology. But here again, we do not wish to downgrade theology. We highly recommend to people the study of the word of God, they know what it says, and they know why it says it. But the point is that many people have made theology a replacement for conformity to the life and the nature of the Lord Jesus. And, of course, this is tragic in the extreme. Now, the Bible speaks, the Lord himself saying, that as a corn of wheat must fall in the ground and die, or else it abides alone, so must we. Now, this is just another way of saying what has already been said in my own words that I can either determine to live my life unchanged by the great life that is within me. You see, a corn of wheat has life within itself, but that life cannot express itself until that corn of wheat falls into the ground and the action of the ground breaks down the hard outer crust on the outside, begins to put its nutrients and life in. Then that life which is on the inside springs up and manifests itself, and that corn of wheat grows up 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, the same is true of ourselves. We have received the Lord Jesus into our lives. But most of us also, through our carnal minds, through our untrained souls, we literally keep that life of Jesus from truly manifesting itself. Now, we're saved. We're truly a corn of wheat. We're not some other wild seed that has no value to anyone. We're a valuable corn of wheat. And we're a part of God's granary. But God doesn't want us to be a part of his granary. He wants us to be a part of his wheat field. He wants our lives to be transformed. So he wants the renewing of our minds to take place. So I don't think like I used to think. He wants my emotions transformed so I do not react to life. Someone says the wrong thing to me and I burst out in angry bursts of temper or someone says the wrong thing to me and I become utterly discouraged and I want to fall back into gross and terrible habits or someone does something to me and I quit doing the work that God has given me to do. doesn't want us that way. He wants us to respond to life. That that life which is in us and that life which is flowing to us from God's Spirit, that life which is coming to us from the Word of God, this is the nutrient, the life, the soil feeding our spirit, the outer crust is breaking, the mind is being renewed, the emotions are being trained, we're coming under that control of God's Spirit, and then we begin to break out with life. Roots are put down in God's soil, and the stem begins to come up, and then the shoot and the branches, and finally the glorious fruit. That's what God wants. Multiplication is God's law of life. But that will never come unless we understand being conformed to the image of Jesus. And just as he had to fall into the ground and die, see, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
we have to learn obedience by the things which we suffer. And the scripture makes that a very clear thing, actually. Trials come into our lives, and sometimes we look at these as though some strange thing were happening, but that's a part of our carnal mind again. The carnal mind, trial comes, we say, well, I'm a Christian. God should protect me. God should deliver me. God should keep all of these things away from me so that I will be happy, content, that I will be... We have all of these odd ideas about what God should do because we're Christians. Now, here's where a proper understanding of our Lord Jesus comes in, being conformed to him. The Bible says, Consider him who endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself. You, it says, have not yet endured shedding your blood, striving against sin. I say, well, no, that's right. I've never shed my blood striving against sin. And I have to constantly refer back to the Lord Jesus going through the sufferings that he did far beyond anything that any man has ever gone through on this earth, the mental anguish, the emotional anguish, the physical terrors that he went through for our deliverance, or else I become weary and I faint in my mind and I begin to fall back on my carnal thinking and say, well, if I'm a Christian, why are all these things happening to me? Instead of coming to the place where I can rejoice when I fall into manifold temptations. Now, do you see the difference between theology, which can know all of these things in the mind, and yet the mind be utterly unconverted? No, what we need is the conversion of the mind, where the mind not only says, oh, yes, I have memory, I remember those things now, or I can repeat those things even and give a good teaching on it. Quite a different thing when they've entered in the very depths of our being, and I say, these things are causing me to be like Jesus. So therefore, I gladly welcome them. I, too, am learning obedience by the things which I suffer. I'm being conformed to his perfect image. Lord, let those things come into my life which are good for me. The Bible tells us that tribulation works patience. But it says, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We're so impatient, but Jesus was patient. He didn't rush into the cross, or he didn't delay from the cross. He didn't rush into trying to fast 40 days, nor did he delay fasting 40 days. He didn't rush up to Samaria hoping to meet the woman that he later met at the well. He didn't drag his feet. He had learned patience. He had learned obedience. He was conformed to his eternal Father. And the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Now, if we can learn the beauty of being conformed to Jesus, then it truly will be so of us that which the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And we can literally feel the tread of our feet simply walking in perfect cadence to the tread of the Lord's feet walking within us, leading us exactly to the place where we should be at any particular time. We can know that our Lord arrived at the well of Samaria at exactly the right moment. And that woman was there. He was destined to meet her. It was God's ordination that he should meet her. But he had learned obedience, so he moved in perfect cadence to the rhythm of his eternal father. And he got there at the right place at the right time. Oh, how precious it is when we learn to be conformed and we arrive at some place, even sometimes not knowing why we're going and then see the marvel of the happening and know we moved exactly in God's cadence 
and we're learning to walk with him. That's what it means to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the last point that I'd like to make here, and maybe we've made it in different ways, but I think I'll just say it in so many words, that we must literally think about the value and grasp the wonder of us personally being conformed to that image. That this world then in seeing us individually, now we'll speak later about the power of the corporate image, but there must also be the individual image because the majority of all people we ever meet will meet us one-to-one, -one, meet us as individuals. They'll walk up to you, they'll walk up to me, and they'll speak with us, they'll engage us in conversation. And my greatest desire and prayer for all of God's people is that when those people of the world, not knowing Jesus, meet us, they really would have met Jesus. Although our faces would be different, our actual expression of words would be different, our manner, our dress would be different, but that life which would have come out of us, that would be the expression of the Lord Jesus Christ to this lost world. Now, in our natural life, there has something which is, oh, it's highly touted everywhere, great willpower, strong will. And if we have no life flowing to us from God, I suppose it's the best thing that we do have. Since as an unsaved person, we're primarily dealing with physical things anyhow, like the drive to be a success in business or the drive to get through school or the drive to make our marriages work or whatever else it is, willpower plays a great place in our lives. And so we try to develop our will as strongly as we can. But even in our natural lives, we see the failure of it. For instance, many people are overweight, and no matter how much they try by means of their will, they're not able to succeed. A few can, the majority cannot. Or they will to quit smoking, or they will to quit drinking, or they will to be a better salesman. And they simply are not able to do that because the will keeps breaking down. So for the few that are able by the force of will alone to accomplish things, the great majority of us are certainly short in that area. So it's a failure even in our natural human lives. But now when we come to God, we are very likely to think now our will has been strengthened, and certainly now by the force of will, we can now accomplish all of these things that the Lord wants us to. So we see how the Lord Jesus was, and then we say, now I will do that. And um, that is not possible in the economy of God. It's not even acceptable to him in the most minor way. The reason being, if this were so, we would be able to boast on that day before him that by the force of our wills, we had conformed ourselves to the image of his son. We had, by the force of our will, given our lives in martyrdom. We had, by the force of our will, preached the gospel, and therefore because of these great and glorious works which we had performed, God would now owe us something. And one thing the Bible does make clear is when we stand before him, it will not be in any way by means of works, but by grace alone. Now, if it is by grace, it is no more of works. And the Bible is very clear to make this point. Now, let's see then if we abandon the idea of the will forcefully moving me towards some goal. Let's see what 
the message of God is really saying. God's message comes to me in power, and I hear it. Now, it is not my will taking hold of it, but the Bible says I receive it by grace through faith, and the faith is not even of myself. It is the gift of God. Now, do you see how carefully God makes it clear to us that in no way was it the result of our will or the brilliance of our mind or our cleverness in recognizing a good thing as against other people not seeing it so clearly as we did? had nothing to do with that. He points out again and again, it was all on his side. We were lost. We had no intention of following God. We had turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord had to come up with his own plan. We didn't ask the Lord for a plan of salvation. He had to come up with it. We were not his friends seeking him. He said, we've all gone out of the way. There's none that seeks after God. No, not one. It is God that sought after us. So the whole thing is on his part. Now, it is not my will taking hold and forcing myself onward, but rather this unruly will finally submitting and saying, God, I surrender. I have no more place in, except that as you guide me, you empower me, you help me, I then will do what you tell me to do. And it is not the will doing something, but rather the will surrendering. Now, wherever the will surrendering becomes our attitude, then the life of God is able to flow powerfully into us. And that conforming takes place on the inside, flows to the outside, and the changes happen quite without us really knowing too much how they really came about, except that we know, as we look back on our life six months at a time or a year at a time, we say, why, how I've changed. I don't do the things I used to do. I don't think that way. What happened to my mind? It's different. It's, you see, now even in the matter of soul training, if the person willfully says, I'm going to control my soul and I'm going to make my soul do this, and he does not realize it's only as God empowers the inner man that he can even speak to his soul. The soul will no more listen to us than Satan will listen to us. Satan will only listen to us as we know the power of the name of the Lord Jesus and we're vitally related to him. And our souls are no more going to give up their tyranny over us except we know deep inside our relationship to Jesus. So it is not really us speaking to our soul so that's proper, it's us doing it in the sense of the vehicle, but the power is the Lord Jesus himself speaking to our soul and bringing it under control and line. It's the Holy Spirit moving through us in life which really brings it about. And it's a matter of my will surrendered now to God, hearing the voice of God and speaking those words. That's what conforms the soul and the mind to the life which is in Jesus. Now there is a cooperative aspect that we have with the Holy Spirit and see our will surrendered, our spirits given over to Jesus to be sure we are actively cooperating with, but it is not the force of our own will at any point that guarantees the result. It is the faithfulness of God that guarantees the result working in us. It speaks here in the second chapter of Colossians in the 20th and 21st verse. We'll read on through to the 23rd. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, 
not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now here's a clear distinction that the great apostle Paul makes. He saw this clearly. That he said, why are you attempting to build a Christian life out of the force of will worship? He said it has a show of outward wisdom. You can talk about your practices and the things you do, and you can talk about how you now have forced yourself to stop biting your fingernails, or you have literally forced yourself to go to church seven days a week, you have forced yourself to pray an hour every morning. You can talk about all these things, and it sounds very impressive, but he says it's all useless. Now, it's quite a different thing when you say, I am not a praying man by nature, but I wanted to be because I knew that's what God wanted me to be. And Jesus is a praying person, and I want to be like him. And God has wrought in me the spirit of prayer. Oh, I thank God for what he has done in me. See, that's to the glory of God. The other one is to the glory of man. And God cannot abide that glory of man type of mentality. Once again, whenever there is the human attempt to humanly analyze the Lord Jesus, then humanly apply that analyzation to life, the end result is always condemnation. That's why the law was called the ministry of condemnation. It was called many things, the ministration of death, the ministry of condemnation, a yoke which neither they nor their fathers could bear. Many things pointing out that it had only one final effect in the life. Whenever the will enters in and tries to enforce a code of behavior, either on itself or others, it only produces a ministry of condemnation. There is no life there. Now, when we stop trying to interpret to the understanding of our human mind what these things mean, for instance, meekness, the true meaning of meekness is submitted to God's teaching. But in our minds, a meek person is one who... His head is bowed, his back is bowed, and he kind of walks around saying, you're humble servant or something. And, of course, that's not what meekness is at all. And raucous behavior, here again, this is a matter of degree, but the Holy Spirit is quite able to bring us into that place of gentleness and quietness, which is his idea of gentleness and quietness, not the human idea of gentleness and quietness. And here again, it's why we said that being conformed to the image of Jesus is how Jesus walks in us living out his life. Well, here we're talking about the feminine. How does he live out his life in a woman? Well, it's obviously different than he would live out his life in a man. They have a particular thing that they... And yet they can truly express the life of Jesus in everything they do, giving glory to God at all times. That's a beautiful thing. But each one has to look to the guidance of the Holy Spirit for that particular expression of that conformed life.